0: Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. This is Tyler Sheff, and I am your co-host to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. Once again, two episodes in a row, we have stolen old Mike from the friendly skies. Mike, how are you doing?
1: I'm back. (laughs) It's it's good to be back. uh, Last month was a little crazy, the honeymoon, getting married, but I'm, I'm here and ready to go, and I'm excited about to hear today's story.
0: Yeah, yeah. Today's it's gonna be a good story. I'm gonna reintroduce a guest that we had on a while back. And uh back then we talked about direct mail and some other different marketing ways, and we talked a lot about being direct to seller, which of course you guys know is something I'm a big fan of. Always try to be direct to seller when you can, if you have the ability, if that's in your comfort zone. Uh reach out directly to seller once you eliminate a lot of the middlemen and the people in the middle, whether it be a wholesaler, brokers, whatever. They tend to get in the way sometimes doing business if you're a qualified operator. So today we've got we've got a return guest on the show. Uh, we got Stephen Wynn with us. Stephen, are you there?
2: Yes. Hey, glad to be back.
0: Welcome back. So just to bring everybody back to full circle, I believe it was episode. I got to look now. Three. Three
1: sixty eight. Three sixty
0: eight. You were on the right. show, and you're a pharmacist. That's your primary. Uh, your W two correct.
2: Yes, that's correct. I work right. full time. W two
0: all right so you have a you doctor, your doctorate in pharmacy and uh you've been doing in real estate investing you developed a direct mail program and you had a coaching program and all that and that's worked out pretty well for you but the uh, reason for this episode is you've come to some ahas in the last year and we're going to talk about those Is that god knows i've had my own many of my own as well the guys have heard those all the guys and girls listening have heard all the the things that have gone on over the years and i call those uh experience lessons, right? Uh, the the seminar rather that I've, I've had several seminars. Uh, Mike's had several seminars over the years as well, but now we're going to hear one of yours. And I'm pretty excited about that because the thing is guys, you know, if I, we can sit there and tell you the, the right thing to do all the time, but if you don't hear and experience other people's Misfortunes and mistakes. You're gonna you're gonna be a lot better investor when you when you really focus to learn more on your mistakes. And the end result here, guys, is that you retool. Right? You don't quit. You don't give up. You pull back. You retool. You get recentered, and you go back at it and get. And that's when you start getting some of your best deals. You guys know. Listen to the episode. Listen to my episodes over the years. I got my petui handed to me up in Memphis, Tennessee, on several occasions, but I came out of it in the end. I was able to take a deep breath figure things back out retool and come out fighting and i wound up turning what was a complete train wreck of an investment opportunity but what those many years ago into a windfall so i was able to walk out of memphis with my head held held high and fortunately my wallet wasn't in, still intact so Stephen, with that go ahead and tell us get bring us up to speed what have you been doing for the last year
2: yeah to kind of summarize briefly kind of my background in real estate for those you know new and haven't listened to the prior episode i basically started investing in 2017 Started house hacking in california everything's expensive here wanted eight. to scale wanted to go out of state so i bought two apartment complexes in a mobile home park in a span of eight months so i bought 80 units in eight months mm-hmm. and i scaled rapidly right in a six year window i went from zero to about 90 units without any partners while working full time as you mentioned earlier i used direct mail to go off market negotiate directly with owners that's how you get good deals that's how deals are made that's how you make money and you know did that was highly successful and then i hit a point this past year where oh i just spent all my capital i hit this mental bandwidth where there's only you hit a certain point where you can only do so much, right? right. Keep in mind, I am working full time at least forty hours a week. I commute two hours a day, um, you know do coaching, mentorship, YouTube on the side. And on top of that, I had three value add deals, two apartment complexes and a mobile home park, and I've probably renovated about sixty units in one year. Wow. So I had a crash course <laughs> in um, real estate. Um, as you mentioned that the best teacher is just taking action and experience. So, you know, I, you know, was crazy successful, at least from the outside. And that's what people would appear. But I, as you alluded to, learned so many lessons through this past year, as I was getting slapped and punched in the gut left and right every single day for the past year.
0: Good deal. Mike, thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I, uh, (laughs)
1: Even right now, I'm, I'm kind of tempted also to, like, oh, let's just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Like, right I have a pilot crash pad that's just filled up, everything's looking great, and I want to start two, three, four, and five. Like yourself, you kind of get caught up in that momentum, like, just, just do, hit repeat, go, 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 go. But then sometimes Tyler talks to me, and then I hear your story, it's like, wait a minute, maybe it's not always a good idea to machine gun through and think Project four is gonna be the same as project one.
0: That's true. That's so very you true. See
1: the cash flow coming in. Uh, well, I think we can all admit it gets addictive. <laughs> really it fast. Does. It does. So uh, what obviously you built up really fast. At uh, so what exactly happened last year? I know you decided to sell your mobile home park, and why why was that?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. And thanks for teeing that that up for me nicely there. you know, Obviously, when you buy 90 units of real estate, and I mentioned their value add. So value add means that you are not making, I mean, you are making money day one, but you're reinvesting that money to renovating all the units. So if I made $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 cash flow, that went back into the apartment complex because I had to renovate all the units. So it feels very discouraging because I'm not feeling any money in my pocket on a day-to-day basis. Whatever I'm making um, gets reinvested back. So it's the definition, asset-rich, cash-poor. I literally lived that for the past year. So the realization I come is I had 90 units of real estate. It's really cool to say. It's really cool to flex. You know, people get impressed by that. But then I quickly learned that, wait a second, I have 90 units. I'm insanely stressed. I'm in two different asset classes in two different markets. Uh, I'd rather just have 50 units that are amazing versus 90 units that are okay. So at that point, I basically came to the realization that, you know what? I put 80% of my time, 80% of my energy, 80% of my money into my mobile home park. I end up selling that for a loss and we can go in deeper, but it took me 12 months to sell my mobile home park versus (laughs) my apartment's are like the neglected two children I have. (laughs) And they were both home runs. Like I literally doubled the value of my 26 unit and made $750,000 of equity. My 20 unit, I renovate all of that. And because interest rates went up, it increased the cap rates, which decreased my value. But even despite that, I was able to do a cash out refinance and pulled out half my money in the deal. It wasn't a home run, but it was certainly a base hit. So I just said, well, a twenty rule. Why would I spend eighty percent of my time just to lose money, right. and twenty percent of my time made me money? So at that point, I just said, you know what, I'd rather be great at apartments in Oklahoma versus be okay at apartments in Oklahoma and a mobile home park in Alabama, which led me to decide just to sell. So that was the huge mindset shift that I had um, while owning all these assets. Because you know, it's, when you listen to podcasts, it, it sounds amazing, right? Mobile home park cash cow, recession resistant, um, mom and pop owners, not institutionalized. There's a lot of buzzwords that a lot of syndicators will share. Um, sure. But I got punched in the face with hard knocks reality and experienced it firsthand and said, oh, my God, this is way, way, way more work and stress than I would like, especially for me. I'm working full time.
0: Right. What do you think the, the concrete differences were between the mobile home park and the apartments. I mean, was it that it was a mobile home park? Is that why it, it lost money or was it just the location that it's in or the on-site management that's there? What were the kind of the, what's the catalyst that made that one fall apart, but yet the other ones did so well?
2: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, you know, this is just my experience, right? Like I'm sure people do well at mobile home parks, but for me, what really started was the location right it, it was in near montgomery alabama oh yeah and you know that area it, it's kind of like memphis tennessee a little bit where <laughs> it's higher in yep. crime and no amount of money can fix a high crime area right and the numbers looked amazing right i bought this 200 lot mobile home park 1.1 million dollars 100k down seller financed 1 million at five percent interest only and you know, I had this value add strategy going on to basically renovate these homes. Um, in Montgomery, Alabama, it's a park-owned home model. It's not a tenant-owned home model. Okay. So that is kind of one piece of failure, right? Right there. And then the kind of renter base was too low. Like these renters were like they weren't paying rent on time. You had to knock on their door like three times a week, four times a week, once a week. Um, it was hard to evict people during COVID because they could just can claim, oh, I can't go to court because I have COVID. I, I have a sickness or I've been exposed. So, you know, I had that working against me. On top of that, the supply chain issues, trying to order supplies to renovate mobile homes. Ugh. You can't just go to Home Depot and, and buy a window for a mobile home. They're very yeah. specific sizing. Hmm. Their appliances are very specific. So you can't just go to Home Depot Lowe's and and find a replacement. You have to order it from somewhere else and they ship it over to you. So it just took forever to do anything. And you know, on top of that, um, also the onsite property manager and the offsite property manager. In in mobile home parks, you can't just fire your property manager and find a replacement the next day, like an apartment. For my apartments, I could literally fire my property manager and I have three backups right now. Uh But with the mobile home, if they're on site, you, if you fire that person, you have to bring in someone else and train them from scratch. So you're just very limited in terms of your options. And then the offsite property manager, you know, they they manage seventy mobile home parks. Um, so I, I thought there was some trust, but you know, at the end of the day, um, they get paid on a monthly basis and they're not paid based on performance. So right. they're not very incentivized to go above and beyond. And basically, whatever. Performer plan they gave me was way under everything, right? The renovation cost was way under or way over. The right. timeline was way over. They basically overpromised, underdelivered, and it's the typical kind of you know salesman approach. So, you know, I thought, hey, you have 30 years experience in the industry. I thought you'd be good, you can teach me, but I quickly learned that, okay, they've been in the industry for 30 years, they're just doing it poorly for 30 years. Right. So, I basically had every single thing working against me um and despite that I lost $60,000, so I, I take it as that's not that bad. It, it could have been a lot worse. I had about maybe half a million into the deal. Right. So the fact that I can come out um of a 10% loss, you know, I do have to carry money in a second lean position. Um, because obviously it's hard to finance a value add park, but you know, assuming the next owner executes the value add strategy and has more capital, then I should be able to get back at least my initial investment and you know get a little bit of money, at, you know, six seven percent, at that second lean position.
0: Well, you know, sixty thousand dollars is no small number by any means. I mean, I wouldn't want to take People say, "Oh, sixty grand, no big deal." Well, sixty grand is a big deal. If it's not a big deal, take it out back and burn it in the barbecue grill, and nobody will. <laughs> sixty grand matters. But I think more importantly, what you probably took away from that, the lessons that you got from that, make that 60K worth it to some degree. And maybe I'm speaking for you, granted, but like for me in Memphis, I got in way over my head. Way, way, way over my head. In an asset class, I didn't understand. I understand apartments, but I didn't understand D class, D as in David, or in my case, dumbass uh apartments. D, the D clientele is not somebody I was good at serving. I didn't understand it. I was, let's just go ahead and say less sympathetic to the situation at hand. I'm like, well, just go get a job. And unfortunately for some Americans, that's not as easy as I might like make it sound. So my biggest problem in Memphis was I didn't belong in D class. Now, Montgomery, Alabama, mobile home park. Is it fair to say you're probably a D class asset as well?
2: Yes, definitely D-glass. So okay. I experienced your pain exactly.
0: Yeah, so I, okay, so we're on the same page because I've made the exact same mistake trying to serve people that I wasn't good at serving. To add insult to injury, I made also made, did another huge mistake. I had two management companies on day one when I bought them. One management company for one asset of the first two buildings. Another asset, man, or another property manager for the second building. They were in different addresses across town. What I learned was I was impressed by the one set of property managers that were very corporate they showed up in a nice suit with a skinny tie and these guys were young and they got ipads and man their reports were robust and it was really exciting the data they could put out the other property manager showed up in a beat-up 1984 truck i don't i'm pretty much sure the shoes he was wearing had been on you know he probably wore back in the 60s and he looked like you know somebody's great grandpa all he all he needed was like a piece of straw in his in his ear to call it done. But the difference in the quality and the level of management I got between the two companies, the ones that look like ragamuffins and literally used to mail me handwritten ledgers for the one building. And my my wife was like, I can't deal with this. I, I need an express, you know, Excel spreadsheet. And they were always spot on. Their math was always correct. They were on time. I mean, they took they handled a mountain of problems. And they had been managing property in Memphis since 1942. Meanwhile, boy wonder in the nice suit with the spreadsheet was feeding me garbage numbers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he could very easily just change things and whatnot. And I found out they were stealing from me. And because they were very good at what they do, they, they structured the contracts and worded things in the contracts that I didn't catch. Meanwhile, the other property manager, Mr. Old School, had like about a two-page management contract. It was very simple. I'm going to do you right, and you're going to do me right. And when I do you right, you're going to pay me blank percent for management. And if somebody moves out, I'm going to charge you blank to get them a new tenant. But if it's within a year, that's okay. That's my fault. I mean, that's literally the language they use in the management contract. I looked at it. My attorney looked at it. He's like, come on, man. (laughs) But the other contract was 14 pages long and in a tiny little print, and it had all kinds of niceties for them baked into it. So it was a mess. So one of the things I take away from that is the Fairweather boys in the suits were not D-class property managers. They did not understand the tenant class. They took it because it was an entry on a spreadsheet. Oh, we got 797 Mississippi on our spreadsheet. They had no plans on managing anything. They just needed something on a spreadsheet to move on to the next customer. Wow. Meanwhile, the other management company who I'll name JD Marks, if you ever get in the trouble I do in Memphis, anybody listening, you want JD Marks managing your properties and nobody else did no disrespect to those that uh, other people in, in Memphis, but you chances are you probably suck if you're have compared to them. <laughs> um, the that was a huge difference my property managers, JD Marks, understood the tenant. They had the ability to solve problems that no other property manager could even conceptualize. They were just, oh, they're bad tenants. But JD Marks is like, they're not bad tenants. Matter of fact, I know that boy's grandmother and I'm going to call her right now. We're going to get them out of the house. That's how they dealt with things. So for me, that was a big takeaway is matching the management to the asset and not necessarily to me because I didn't really I wasn't on board right away with how they did business. And my wife definitely wasn't on board. She's like, where's my Excel spreadsheet. But in the end, the only way I made money is by firing fancy pants, the property manager and replacing them with JD Marks. And it was that those JD Marks property managers that took me by the hand and said, okay, get off the bridge. You're not going to die. We're going to figure this out. (laughs) And we got out, we, we, we wound up coming out with a pretty substantial profit. So I got lucky, but uh, thoughts on that, Mike.
1: Wow, I never thought about m- matching the property manager with the, the tenant class. What a good story yeah uh, uh, S- Steven so you know you said you sold the mobile home park and you're still holding the second lien position yes and so that that's pretty common in selling ho- mobile home parks just because it's tough to get hundred or well, decent financing on it
2: Is that what yeah you? so um w- when selling the mobile home park because I'm an investor, you know, I know how to structure things that would be favorable. And I knew that this park was heavy value add. So basically, um, you know, you had to get a hard money loan this deal and interest rates today are like 10 to 14%. So, and they're gonna require more inspections, require everything. So I knew to sell this as fast as possible and to attract a buyer who can execute the value add plan, I needed to make it very favorable. So I did, you know, they're taking over my seller, uh, Finance loan in first position. I had to carry about $450,000 in second lien position. So they basically came out of pocket of $100,000 down um, on the deal because I knew that they're going to put a lot of capital in to continue renovations, continue fixing up the park because there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. It just felt very discouraging because I pumped a lot of money into this park, but it felt like the park didn't really progress. And you know, I really love what Tyler mentioned that you have to kind of have a specific property manager for a specific asset class. And I think the property manager or the on-site one, now I'm thinking back, he wasn't um, kind of a a hard ass for lack of a better word. Um, You basically have to knock on the door and be like that bad cop where, hey, like rent is due, please pay rent. Cause that's a type Mm. of clientele that the mobile and park dealt with. But we had the security guard that we had to hire because there's so much crime but he was just like your other property manager where he would know hey we go to the same church hey i know your aunt i know your grandma i know you please um pay rent or else you know what we'll to send you an eviction notice so it requires a lot more hands-on approach and looking back i wasn't used to d-class tenants as well I, i'm used to um you know california they're a class and in oklahoma it's c-class workforce housing so you know those are a lot more what I'm used to working with, and you know, maybe that's what led to me losing money as well. And, and a great point, as well. I, I learned from what you said, as well, Tyler.
0: So let's flip over to the apartments for a minute. The value add, those are impressive numbers. Well done. Um, what's next? And now, do you stay in the apartment space kind of like staying in your way? Like for me, I, I came out of Memphis knowing never again will I serve a D community, and frankly. I'm going to go on a limb and say, I'm pretty much done with traditional rental property. Now that I've investigated and I've truly come to understand this the living model, it's passion project number one, because I get to help people and that's most often awesome. Uh, and two, I just can't argue with the, the logistics of it, you know, and the, and the numbers behind it. So for you, is it, are we done with D class mobile homes? Would you reconsider a mobile home park if it was like a B or a 55 and up? How do you feel about that?
2: Yeah. So, you know, for me, I would say my real estate journey was really stressful. This was probably the first time I experienced financial stress in my whole life, Right? you know, and, and keep in mind in my last episode, I, I had $250,000 of student debt, which I paid off in four years, but that didn't really stress me. So, you know, for me, just bleeding $10,000 a month, pumping into my mobile home park Man. every single month. I mean, I had the money allocated for it, but I'm bleeding $10,000 a month. I'm pumping at least ten to fifteen thousand dollars a month to each apartment complex, so you're writing big checks every single month, right? And this is way more than I make in my W two, right? right? These are yeah. big, big checks. So I, I finally hit the point where, you know, it it took me twelve months to sell it. So I just said, man, like, what's gonna happen? Am I gonna go bankrupt? You know, your mind starts going down this negative spiral, and I hit rock bottom. I would say in March where I just said, why am I doing this? Like, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I investing in real estate? Why did I scale so fast? Like, who do I think I was? Like, who am I to like own 90 units of real estate? And what I say is, you know, in the moment, it, it was really, you know, dark and, and down, but like looking back, like that's the moment when you learn the most and you're getting the most clarity. Mm-hmm. So for me, when you hit rock bottom, that's a time to open your eyes, open your mind and just soak in everything because it will pass, number one. And then number two, this is when you will get the most clarity that will take you to the next level or your next journey in real estate. So for me, my big realization was why not just go all in in Oklahoma and buy C-class value apartment complex. I've done two very well. I know the area. I know the market. I have two great property managers. I have two great general contractors. The area isn't high in crime. And I can become wealthy and achieve all my financial goals just by owning apartment complexes in Oklahoma. Why would I go to any other market or do any other asset class besides the markets I already know and have an unfair advantage in? So my clarity was, had I just not bought that mobile home park, and I did have an opportunity to buy a 50 unit next to my 26 unit at the same time I bought my mobile home park, had I bought that 50 unit in Oklahoma, I'd be in a different situation today, right? I, I would have not suffered a loss it you know oklahoma appreciate like crazy um you know even over this past year and you know but to me i had shiny object syndrome i deviated to mobile home parks um you know sounded great on podcasts and whatnot but you know i got slapped and punched and and learned a lesson and it definitely gave me clarity that is worth way more than sixty thousand dollars that i lost on the deal so for me just going all in on Oklahoma, you know, I have a direct mailing campaign system that I use. I know the area, I have boots on the ground. Like it's just a no-brainer. Like I could buy, you know, quadruple double my portfolio over time right. and have way more wealth than I would need or know what to do with. And and for me, you know, real estate is lifestyle freedom. So isn't it easier just to talk to one property manager who's managing all your units versus I'm talking to my property manager and Oklahoma. And I got one in Alabama for a mobile home park. And so that was kind of my big aha moment that I received or, or learned kind of during that, that dark period in my real estate investing journey.
0: It's powerful. That's very powerful. First of all, I got to say, I have a lot of respect for you for having the courage to come on and talk about your mistakes. That's not something most people will do. Most people hide behind their mistakes. And then they, they, unfortunately, uh, you, other people can't learn and that just creates a bad situation for everybody. So you know, thank you so much for taking the time to show up for that right out of the gate. Uh, I'm with you on that because like the lessons I learned in Memphis, I will never ever mess around in uh sitting pre-1960 or pre-1980 uh D class apartments in a depressed community. It just won't do it. I, I I don't have any interest in it at all. Once you find, and I love what you said there about Oklahoma, once you sign a find a recipe. That works. For example, especially you, you've dialed in direct mail like nobody's business. You are for you, lead generation from direct mail is not challenging at all because you've already gone through to the trial and error phase, you've knocked the rough edges off, and now you've built this perfect machine. Not well, as close to perfect as it possibly can, nothing's perfect, but it works. So why do you why do you deviate from what works? There's really no good reason to. And that's what I love about that. I was talking to a buddy that I've been coaching for years that owns an appliance company. And he came to me years ago and Mike and I were just talking about this because he's a mutual friend of ours. And he had said, I want to get involved in real estate investing, which is how we originally met. And back then I had told him he was working for somebody else as an appliance repair guy. And I said, what are you doing? You don't even need to get in real estate. You understand the appliance business like nobody else open an appliance business and just take over. And that was probably 10 years ago. And that's what he's done. Now he's crushing it. he's in the seven figure club He's doing things like this year that just would blow your mind, fixing appliances, which is something I didn't even really take seriously for many years. But he found his niche, and he stuck with it, and now he's crushing it. it did he go through hard knocks? Of course he did. Uh, Mike's on the same path with his crash pads. A lot of bumps in the beginning there, wasn't it, Mike?
1: <laughs> yeah, a lot of stress. Like you're talking, Steve, and I was on the bridge, too, looking down like, uh, what's? how do I just bail out of this? But eventually you figure yeah. out how yeah. it works because it's if, with every it seems like with every different type of investment every model every market your the way you operate seems to be just a little bit different right you know um speaking of markets <laughs> uh i'm really curious Stephen. so you're very good obviously with direct mail marketing the past year since the last time we talked in december uh, things have changed in the market, right? I, I think it's fair to say in real estate. Have you seen any difference in response rates or type of responses through the direct
2: mail? Um, so I actually haven't personally been setting up mailers because I was focused on you know stabilizing my 90 units. Oh. Um, didn't want to tempt myself with more shiny object syndrome and yeah. you know I hit my capital limit, but I, I do – um, do direct mail for a lot of my clients and students in my coaching program. Mm. And, you know, a lot of them that, you know, are attracted to me for some reason want to invest in Oklahoma mm. as well and and leverage my my team and my, my, my knowledge. But based on the response, um, I think it's been about the same. Um, the sellers are still a little bit uh, unrealistic about their price, despite uh. interest rates like doubling. And that's where the issue becomes. And I, I think my, I guess my secret skill or my superpower I would say is I'm just very educational by nature. So when I tell people, okay, like, let's just run the math using your price that you want based on how the lender would look at it. Mm -hmm. And I would do the math with them and just say, Hey, look like you need a debt service coverage ratio of 1.25. And based on your numbers that you gave me and your ink, your expenses that you gave me and the loan terms, like at that price, it's not going to work. And right. usually at that point, they would just say, oh, okay, well, how can we solve this? And at that point, you can maybe pitch creative financing where it's, you know, your price, my terms, and you right. you would pick favorable terms for yourself. So I think for me, um, that skill, it, it works regardless of any, you know, market, whether it's hot interest rates are high or it's low recession, bull market, whatever, if you have that skill set in, in being able to educate off-market owners and explain things in a, in a very easy to understand way without being, you know, condescending or or coming off as a, you know, big fancy suit guy in a skinny tie. Mm. Right. (laughs) Um, if you can do that, it really builds the trust and you know, you'll get a lot of no's and you'll waste a lot of time, but they'll remember you. Right. If in a, maybe they don't sell today, but in maybe three years, four years, if they want to sell, they're going to remember you. So when I do want to actively look again for deals, um, which might be soon in the next year. Um, I'm just going to reach back to the owners that I didn't buy their property because I still have their contact from my last direct mailing campaign. And I would just reach out and say, hey, you know, just finished uh, stabilizing my, my two apartments and, and have some capital and, and looking to find some more deals and, you know, just see where that conversation goes. So I think for me, it, it's just really, um, the same and but it's just getting the new the owners or the sellers realistic to the higher interest rate market and it's a great opportunity to say well why should i pay the bank eight percent you know how about i pay you yes how
1: could you say no to that Yeah,
2: right like who can say no to eight percent that's like the s p 500 average so uh and it's it's that's kind of the strategy i've been using and it it works in any market which is why i love going off market right like it, it works in any market.
0: I just had a brilliant aha moment when you said that. It's like, well, when I used to pitch that when rates were 3.75%, I would go, but you can get 4%. People are like, "Yeah," But now, an 8% return on anything looks attractive. Oh, yeah. So essentially, by the rates increasing, seller financing has gotten, should be, if it's pitched properly, which I'm sure you figured that out because you do it every day, far more attractive. But because in the end, you can pay 10 12 18%. Provided that, and that which would be their terms to use your words, provided they give you your price. Do you want to get a 10% return on your investment, Mr. Seller? We can work that out. No, I can't give you 1.1 for the building. I can give you 900. But at the end of the day, you're not going to keep this loan for, for till we pay it off anyway. The most important thing to remember is you're going to capitalize on 10% return for the next five years until this building gets sold to somebody else. And that's something to write home about. So that creates a really compelling argument. I like what you said. How you, when you brought that up, I was like, oh my god, that's fantastic. So moving forward, learning what you've learned now, mobile homes are a thing in the past for you. Cap rates are expanding in the marketplace. Uh, Maybe not in in Oklahoma, which I'm curious if that's the case in Oklahoma. But at least down here in Florida, cap rates are expanding. What what used to get done into four or five cap is now getting done at six, seven cap. A lot of the weird, weird things going on in the marketplace. A lot of stuff we can't put our fingers on. What do you say to the new guy, just getting started? That's where you were a year or two ago. Has the, the job doesn't really want to stay as in the W two forever. Has some capital in the bank. Thinks they need to you know expand fast. What would be their next steps? What do you think would be the good path for them? Does multifamily make sense these days to you? Notes. What's it look like?
2: Yeah, I think for me, for kind of the newer investor that was in my shoes, you know, a few years ago, you know. In a weird, ironic way, fast forwarding to 90 units and, and, or now 50 and doing this for like three years, I actually appreciate my W2 job more now because, mm-hmm. regardless of how I perform or how I work, you're, you're guaranteed a paycheck every two weeks versus when you own real estate, you have to work for it and it's 24 seven. It's not nine to five, it's a 24 hour gig, seven days a week, and it's highly stressful and you're pumping money into it about a guarantee that you'll make money i mean if you follow strategies and and you know learn and self-educate and and buy right and force appreciation of course you're going to minimize that downside but for me i just it's just to really um educate yourself on, on one niche and just commit to that one niche and do it for the rest of your life and you can't lose like if i do multi-family in oklahoma for the rest of my life you know keep in mind i'm, I'm 33 so I, I can do this for another 40 years Um, I will know Oklahoma real estate like the back of my hand. And uh, (laughs) there's no way I can be unsuccessful if I do Oklahoma multifamily for 40 years. So for me, I personally like multifamily because you always need housing, right? right? Like housing is always needed and it's affordable housing. Like it's 700 bucks a month for a fully renovated unit. And that's nice. So, you know, your average blue collar workers or your lower income workers can afford it. And it's only 25% of their take-home income you know, if you're taking home, you know, 20, twenty hundred dollars a month, you can put, you know, 700 towards your rent. It's only 25%. You know, in California, people spend 50, 60% of their income just on rent alone. So you have a nice margin that appeals to people. And, you know, to me, it, the, the key is just to um, commit to action. That's the only way you'll learn. Like you can listen to all the podcasts, all the courses, all the mentorship, but you learn the most by doing and taking action. So for me, I spent $60,000 to get a crash course in mobile home parks for the past two years. And now I learned a lot about mobile home parks to the point where I could probably vet a uh, syndicator if I wanted right. to go down that route, if I want to invest passively. Or it just gave me clarity to say, you know what, Stephen, no shiny object syndrome. Don't do self-storage. Don't do industrial. Don't do whatever, Airbnb. Just do what you're good at and what you know and what you have a track record in And I know it's boring to do one thing for a long period of time. It's not cool to say. It's not the sexiest cocktail talk. I get it. But boring is what is best and what's works over a long period of time. If you can hone yourself to do something boring for a long period of time, you will generate as much wealth as you will ever imagine. Just doing that. And that's what I realized. And I feel looking back stupid that, well, how did I fall into all these shiny object syndrome stuff? But hey, every... You know, entrepreneur, every real estate investor needs to get punched in the gut a few times. The key is you just want to get back up and ensure that your loss doesn't wipe you out. So for me, I lost exactly. 60000 and that was only about 5% of all the money that I invested collectively into real estate, right? So it, it, it's a lot, but in the grand scheme of how much I invested, it's 5%. So don't go all in on a mobile home park that you know nothing about. And, and then, you know, you can potentially lose all your money. So it, it's really to look at the upside. But as I got more experience, you want to focus on that downside, right? It's asymmetrical risk analysis. If you have zero downside, but you have upside, that's a no brainer deal. You can't lose on that deal. The key is just to get back up and survive. So that's kind exactly. of the, the key takeaway I would tell um, newer investors. And like you said, you want to hear the content where, cause I consume a lot of content and podcasts. It's all rosy, all the mobile oh, yeah. park ones, all oh, the yeah. big mobile oh. park podcasts. I consumed all that when I bought my park, when I was under due diligence, I listened to at least 10 hours a day and they were all super rosy cash cow. You can't go wrong. And as I got my mobile park and I was actually trying to sell my park to some of those bigger operators and I structured it very, um, ideally. So they would right. buy it hundred K down park's yours right? You have the team, you have the operations, you have the scale to bring this value ideal all the way to the finish line. I couldn't, right. but even then they didn't respond to me. They ignored my emails. They ignored uh-huh. my call. They didn't take me seriously. And I teed it up to them on a silver platter. Hey, wow. this is the plan. I've proven the model, just continue it. And you have the team to do it. And I would literally said, you just need hundred K down and they turn it down. And I, I just showed me that, wow, these, I thought these top five operators were amazing. And and built Rome, but they're putting out dumpster fires every day, just like me. So it was interesting <laughs> to kind of see that perspective um, from that. So it definitely gave me a different view of people who I thought were the top of the craft. They were just dealing with a dumpster fire just like me, who's one person
0: doing this part time. Knowing a lot of those mobile home guys, they, they tend to, if, they, if there were more pads, they probably would have jumped on it. If it was you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pads, they would have jumped all over it. But for whatever reason, they ignore those smaller parks. They're not, it's Maybe it's not worth their time, whatever it may be. I never quite understood that. But Mike, parting thoughts on that? I've got a question for both of you all.
1: I've never uh, owned remotely. I've always had properties where I either live in or I work by. So, Stephen, yours in Oklahoma City. You're in California. That makes sense, right? You're looking for areas of cash flow. Tyler, same thing. You were in Florida and you were in Memphis.
0: I'm in always Ohio. curious.
2: How how often did you physically go up to the properties? Steven? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'll answer first like to be honest, I've been to Oklahoma one time and I've been to Alabama one time. It was the first time I was there and the reason why I was there cuz I was under contract on my 26 unit apartment complex and then on my mobile home park in near Montgomery, Alabama. And so for me when I went there, I was there for about 3 to 5 days, you know, during the inspection I would follow the inspectors around. Um, to ask questions. I met my, my property managers there, had my general contractor there, and then I would do that during the daytime. And after at nighttime, I would just drive around different areas just to get a sense of the area and the uh, market. So for me, to be honest, I never really visit that often. Like I haven't been there since, and it's been over like two years. Hmm. So for me, I really trust my property managers and general contractors, but I also verify, right? So so how do I verify? I want pictures of renovations. I want videos of renovations. I, I just can call them and say, hey, show me on uh, FaceTime that, um, hey, how's my property look? How's everything look? You, you can validate that stuff and, right. or you can just hire like, you can go on like Facebook Marketplace and pay someone says, hey, they said they painted this unit. Can you go buy, take some pictures from me? and send it to me I'll pay you like whatever 30 bucks to do that so there's multiple ways to really trust but verify and you know for me because I work full-time I I just knew that I had to be a little bit hands-off and I think I'm a little bit fortunate because I manage about 40 pharmacists in the hospital so by nature of it I can't really have much control even though I'm like physically there I'm not there 24 7. Because the hospital operates twenty four seven, I'm not there twenty four seven. So I kind of took that same approach and applied it to my real estate investing. And you know, I knew that was the cost, right? California, no way could I buy a twenty six unit for half a million dollars. That that gets me yeah, a half, condo in California. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in in California, a half million dollar condo rents for two thousand versus my half a million dollar, 26 unit, I get $18,000 gross rent a month. And I'm cash flowing about $7,000 net after all expenses, including my my loan debt service. So for me, it just made sense where I could have appreciation from California, um, which appreciate crazy, but also diversify and have more cash flow in Oklahoma. But with multifamily, as you increase your cash flow, you increase your net operating income, and that increases the value of your Asset, so you can have the best of both worlds um, with uh, multifamily and apartments, which is why I, I really love multifamily and apartments because you can have your cake and eat it too, right? So that's what when I once I learned that I said no way am I ever gonna invest in anything else besides apartments.
0: I can tell you that I've invested in I've I own properties and and have owned properties in Ohio. I had to write down the list i had to think about ohio. it you were ohio pennsylvania illinois indiana arkansas texas tennessee and florida and i can tell you that the only two states i've visited those properties in is tennessee and florida but i can also tell you that the properties that i've made leaps and bounds the majority of the money off of have been tennessee and florida mm. and that's because in those pro in those two markets i heavily learned i heavily involved myself in the local marketplace so that when I interviewed my team, my property managers, I could, that's when I started uncovering in Tennessee the problems. Once I took the time to focus on what's going on in the marketplace and what's reality instead of what the seller is telling me or the, the, the old property manager or the broker, if they're involved, once I really got a grasp of, Hey, if you're right next to Booker T Washington high school in, in Memphis, you'll do well. Provide your place in a rat hole because everybody wants their kid to have that address so they can go to Booker T. Washington High School because that's the only chance those kids have of getting an NFL scholarship in college. Interesting note. I would never have known that. So when I was about to throw one building out with the bathwater, that's actually the building that I started turning around because I had learned that little insider tidbit. And my new property manager, JD Marks, knew that information. And they leveraged that in their marketing. So I leased, I went from completely empty in that building to leased up. And that was, uh I think, 18 doors or something like that in a matter of two weeks for above market rent wow. for that one fact. Now, had I been completely hands-off across the country, never would have figured that out. But keep in mind, it wasn't my idea necessarily to be that hands-on. I was trying to be hands-off. But the problem is it was such a grenade that exploded in my face. <laughs> I, w- I went I, I went there and spent a great deal of time learning the market as damage control because that was the first deal I had done with somebody else's money. Had it been my own money, I'm not convinced I would have stuck with it as much. The reason and the drive that got me involved in that was there was no way in hell I was going to lose that investor's money. It wasn't going to happen because I'm a guy that's going to pay it off. I don't care about the, the, the agreements and all this other stuff. not going to let somebody else lose money on my watch especially if i'm the knucklehead that wrote the check so that's was my gumption to make all that happen the other properties in the other states we've done we've done great on on some of them we've done okay on some of them and we've done terrible on like two or three of them Uh, a lot of that is because i didn't understand the markets and understand those houses came from the result of mortgages that we bought bad debt mortgages that we bought and knowingly And then we wound up getting the house at an auction. And now those properties are are rentals. So there's a lot of moving parts in those deals. Had I been more involved in those deals, I let other team members do more of that and and business partners and whatnot. That's where things started to fall apart. What we're doing now with our real estate fund is we are invested in a market that I intimately understand, that I have been personally investing in for a decade. Uh, I know everything about it. I know everybody in it. And I know all the players and I know the city government and I know the county government. So for us, we can get a lot farther down the road and a lot more effective because we have that local centric knowledge. And Mike shares in that because Mike has joined me at city council. We've sat through meetings with the city attorneys and whatnot. We, we really understand the infrastructure. So just like you, Stephen, you can effectively navigate Oklahoma because you understand the product. You know, it's kind of like being somebody, being a, being a a physician and being a a specialist in podiatry, and then suddenly taking on heart surgery, you might get it right the first time, but there's a pretty good chance you're not. But as a, as a podiatrist, you're going to knock it out of the park every time, provided you're working from the ankles down. And, And that's really what you're saying with Oklahoma. You understand that market, you understand the product, and more importantly, You're able to build teams and systems within that market to be successful. And I think, first of all, I I know you're going to crush it uh, because you've you've discovered that and you've capitalized on that. So now the rest for you, it's going to be exciting. I'd like to have you back in another year and let's look with that because I I know you're going to come through all these market issues because you're a smart and you're a driven guy. You've already gone through the worst. Now you're going to come out, you're coming out of it already in a time place where you shouldn't be able to pull this off but you're still doing it. I love that. And I, and I love the motivation and the gumption you got behind it. So I'm really interested to have you back like next year. And let's talk about how much more you've crushed it in Oklahoma. I just drove through Oklahoma, the Southern part of it this year, my way back from Yellowstone. So I got to see some of those markets and I thought to myself, not too shabby, not what I thought. I was thinking Garth Brooks, Oklahoma, but <laughs> there's a lot of opportunity out there. If you know the players, those of you listening to the podcast, there is an Oklahoma near you somewhere too. I wouldn't recommend running out in Oklahoma and trying to compete with Stephen because he's going to crush you because he's got systems in place, because he has the team. He understands the marketplace. Folks at home, get out there and find a market that makes sense for you. Understand that. Stephen are you still offering coaching?
2: Yeah, I I do offer coaching and mentorship still and and give a lot of free content on my YouTube channel, just kind of sharing the experience, the good, the bad, the ugly, and in hopes to be transparent. And so others can learn from my mistake. And, you know, I'm operator. I'm in the weeds every day. So, you know, and I I just speak from I don't need to research anything when I talk. I just talk because I'm doing it. I'm just sharing exactly what I'm doing. And, you know, those are the type of people you need to follow in whatever market it is. Right. You can talk theory all you want, but you can tell those who know what they're doing through peer experience and personal experience like yourself, or like people who just tell you conceptually, yeah, you should just do mobile home parks or apartments because they can make you rich and retire early. <laughs> so still definitely offer that in, in attempts to, um, you know, hopefully rise to the top one day and, and, and weed out the, 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 co- the courses and mentors who, who just kind of teach theory.
0: There you go. And keep in mind for those of you at home, just to kind of wrap it up and put a bow on it. loss is a lot of, it can be a lot of money granted, but I know I have friends of mine years ago that spent three times that much on education alone, uh, and come out of it with nothing, no assets. There are guru courses out there these days, like blows me away to even think of this. You can spend a quarter million dollars just learning how to be a wholesaler, learning how to be a wholesaler, having zero assets at the end of it and owning a job that you paid $250,000 to learn, uh, That's kind of scary. The best way to learn is to get out there and do it. The best way to people to learn from are the people that are out there doing it. Steven's clearly one of them. I'll put his links to his YouTube channel and social media down on the show notes. Make sure you get out there, take consume some of that content. And most importantly, you take nothing else away from this episode. It's about taking action. That's when you make it happen. That's where the rubber meets the road. Guys and girls, we will catch up to you next week and uh, we'll see you. Now the last thing I want to say before we go is the same thing I, I always say, and I haven't been doing it lately. Shame on me! But 2023 is almost over. It is now November 8th as we're recording this. It's not too late to finish out this year with a home run. That begins by taking constant action. You can get started today for 2024 if that if that suits your needs. But it's time to take action, guys. We'll catch up with you next week.